Welcome to this Brews News Brewery Pro podcast of the beer quality webinar we hosted on 25 November 2020. This podcast and the transcript, a link of which you will find in the show notes, was made possible with the support of Kegstar. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Brews News, and thank you very much for joining us for this uh, very first uh, Brews News Live webinar. Um, it was part of our uh, personal COVID pivot, and I'd like to thank uh, Kegstar for helping us to make it possible. Um, the premise for today's webinar is quality, um, innovation and quality, because over the last two decades, we've seen rapid shifts in the beer landscape with the number of participants growing at a frenetic rate. With many of these new players seeking uh, to push style and technical boundaries to gain attention in an ever more crowded market. At the same time, notions of craft, the craft of brewing that saw many smaller brewers enter the industry, eschewing some of the uh, techniques employed by larger brewers that nominally were there to uh, designed to encourage characteristics such as beer quality and shelf stability. And they've assured them in the name of the craft. Amidst all of this, we have seen arguably an increase in beer recalls and withdrawals, but also, at least I'm seeing, lots of social media about beers with uh, what could politely be called aesthetic quality issues of gushing, leaking cans, floaties or more uh, in poured beers. Some argue that this is all part and parcel of the craft and a sign that it's an industry pushing boundaries for the better. Others don't. And I suspect from my previous conversations with my panelists that they have their own thoughts on it. Um, I can see them holding back already, which is why I've assembled uh, them for this panel discussion, as I mentioned, made possible by our good friends at Kegstar. I'm honored and delighted to uh, welcome Charlie Bamforth, uh, former Anheuser-Busch Endowed Professor of Brewing Science, current Distinguished Professor Emeritus, uh, University of California, Davis, and Senior Quality Advisor, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you. It's always nice to be with you. Uh, I wish you could be with us in person, but that will have I to wait too. up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd also like to welcome Claire uh, Clouting, um, Gage Roads Operation Systems Manager, um, and co-founder of BIRA, a not-for-profit laboratory proficiency scheme for the brewing industry and something very germane to, today, to, to today's discussion. And also Dermot O'Morta, who has been instrumental in pushing this uh, conversation as the Group Quality and Assurance and Sustainability Manager with Endeavour Drinks Group and the Chair of the Wine Industry uh, Sustainable Packaging Alliance. And in many ways, the man uh, who works for the largest retailer in the country that has to tidy up sometimes when, literally, when uh, things do go wrong. Um, I guess in opening that, does anyone in, in the panel have any issues they want to raise with that premise behind, uh, you know, the development of the ideas of craft over the last 20 years? Well, what I would say is... Um... You know, I always bemoan the fact I don't actually know what craft really is because over here it's uh, in the States, it's uh, less than six million barrels of beer a year. But uh, what I would insist is uh, every one of those barrels and every can or every bottle should uh, meet expectation and should uh, have the ultimate uh, quality. And I don't believe that, uh, that uh, there's any... Uh, any case for people saying, "Oh well, if it if it's sort of uh, not not perfect, that's because it's it's somehow crafted to be natural or something like that." Uh, there are no excuses, you know. Beer's been around for thousands of years, and we know how to do it. We know how to do it well. 
and I don't think anybody on any scale should be doing it anything other than properly. Admittedly, um, Charlie, I've seen, I haven't seen it here um, in Australia as much, but I have seen brewers in the United States um, point to the label uh, that they've put on the package saying, must be kept refrigerated as if that's an out um, if things go wrong. Uh, and I know, Dermot, uh, that we've spoken about that. Is it acceptable to just to say, well, my beer should be refrigerated? You know, it, it would treat it like milk? No. No, um, not at all. I, I, I actually did see a cider do something similar. And, uh, yeah, we, we went into discussion with them around it just to help them out to really understand from a customer perspective, it's not something that uh, I suppose the common man knows and expects them to protect themselves from injury or from an exploding can that they, they got to keep it uh, refrigerated. So I think that premise around putting that kind of warning on, it's just uh, it, there's a level of slackness to it. I think there's a lot more you can be doing at the brewery, which is supply chain to ensure you've got a good quality product. And then having a good quality, safe products, uh, then not going to have to put the requirement of putting a, a warning label on your package. Um, it's just, yeah, if, you know, whatever, however we want to find craft beer, but more that micro moving, you know, from uh, I'm a, a home brewer and I'd love to set up a little brewery. And, you know, that's kind of that, that movement that's kind of brought a wave of new brewers into the industry. Looking back where we had uh, more industrial scale breweries, uh, these were issues that just uh, they were unheard of. And looking at the numbers now in the last couple of years, we have seen a, a steady increase uh, in recalls, at least uh, withdrawals as well from a, just a precautionary perspective and removing stock off shelf for uh, because we're, we're concerned that the product may have a secondary fermentation happening. And uh, you know the 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 the, the you know the the outcomes can be quite uh, dangerous at times as well. We we know of injuries, people uh, with hand injuries, with cans uh, tearing their skin, uh, but also uh, if a secondary fermentation occurs in a glass bottle, uh, you've got uh, glass fragments flying through the air, and you know somebody could get a glass fragment into the eye. I'm aware of a, a circumstance where somebody was driving home uh, from uh, one of our stores and had the can on their, uh, their seat and the can exploded in the car. So th that's the kind of circumstances. It's, it's, you know, I think uh, sometimes when I read it, um, I don't get the sense sometimes it's taken seriously enough. And because it's not taken seriously enough, it's, it's something that's just accepted. It's, it, it really isn't something that should be accepted. It's, it needs to be, uh, the, pro the, the beer needs to be brewed to a point where the, this just the, there isn't a chance of a, a secondary fermentation occurring. Uh, I have to recognise, though, the brewers that have been I have worked with have been uh, very uh, proactive in this space. And when we have brought it to their attention, they've been very quick on, on the mark to get a recall out and basically isolate and bring back uh, any of those affected uh, products. You know, it's it's amazing if you think of any any product in the marketplace. I'm talking generally about all sorts of things. The, the worst thing in the world is uh, a failure in the trade. You know. You think of all the automobiles, you know, recalls, you know, for seatbelts that prematurely sort of get going and so on and so forth. And it's just the same in brewing. The last thing in the world that anybody should have um, or, or tolerate is a failure in the trade. 
and uh, and it's it it's it doesn't only bring that company down it it brings the whole industry um, down um, if people are not responsible and are not uh, delivering quality expectations. I think it's important as well to note. I mean, from the food industry for many years, and it's a fairly well-known fact that when you issue a recall at a consumer level, you get very little of that product actually back. So you know, you may be advertising in store in papers, or you know, might be the Facebook page um, or something like that. But I know from dealing with previous recalls in, in another type of food. Um, it was very few packets actually got returned. So it's a bit like shutting the gate after the horse has bolted, which really worries me as also. And when I, in my introduction, I, I sort of talked about craft beer, not to spark that discussion of what is craft beer. Um, and that was more, I saw a comment uh, a while ago um, when there had been uh, a consumer issue uh, that someone had recorded on Facebook and the response that came from somebody associated with the product was it happens with all beers. Um, and I, I see you shaking your head there, Charlie, because I, I don't actually recall, uh, and it's not a small versus large craft versus mainstream, but I don't recall a recent quality issue regarding um, mainstream beer. Um, well, they, they do occur from time to time, um, but it is unusual, but it can happen to the best as well. So if it can happen to the, the best, you know, it is always a risk and people have always got to be uh, on their toes. The most recent one I can recall is uh, there was a problem with the glass. Actually, it wasn't the beer. It was actually the glass bottle and it was prone to the neck breaking. And that company very responsibly uh, re withdrew or brought the, the product back. I did ask the the, the 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 company, you know, was it just you? And the answer was no. But they're the only ones that actually did it properly. You know. Funnily enough, that was the last one that I recall in Australia from a, a large aligned brewery as well. And and I can remember my old company in the UK, Bass, which was of course a fairly sizable company. I mean, they managed to put out beer with with cooling agent in it. You know, the, the glycol cooling agent used in a, an heat exchange. There was a leak, and it got into the beer. And I, I'm sure a lot of people would have ignored that, um, but they didn't. They withdrew it from trade. It was a disaster. I mean, the share prices, the stock price, fell down very rapidly. Um, so it can happen, despite uh, how how uh, how uh, careful you are however it should be it should be unusual and it shouldn't be accepted it, it should be viewed as an absolute crisis um, if anything goes wrong it's it's the worst thing in the world and and you know people should realize that it, it does nobody any favors uh, to to put out shoddy product dermot i i did cast it in terms of innovation and beer quality is it a, a relatively fair generalization to say that there, the, the, the styles of beer that we are seeing uh, having being prone to recall are beers where brew, they're non-traditional um, beer styles, that they may be beers that you know, brewers are looking at um, new, newer techniques or less established techniques um, that are going out into a retail environment? There's, I would say, uh, I wouldn't say them, I wouldn't call them off kilter uh, 
out there beers. Um, okay. I think uh, you'd probably, you know, some of the ones we, you know, there were, we've seen stouts, we've seen porters, uh, we've seen uh, our fruit beers, uh, ciders. Uh, yeah, so it, it's a general mix. It's not generally, uh, I think the, the trend would be towards uh, fruit additions, but uh, I, I wouldn't say that then uh, leaves out then the possibility of uh, your uh, stout then going into a secondary ferment. I've seen stout go into a secondary ferment with diastaticus. Somebody in the um, chat room has just uh, reminded me that Guinness Zero was recalled this month um, that uh, I haven't looked into, but I presume it had something to do with the low alcohol or the sort of alcohol. Well, it's, it's alcohol free. And I think the problem was that therefore it was susceptible to uh, pathogens. I mean, yeah. uh, pathogens won't grow in regular beer, but if you've got no alcohol there um, and you've got a problem, I'm, I'm assuming they pasteurized that product if there was a pasteurizer issue or something like that. But uh, but again, they recalled it. You know, they yeah. uh, they didn't accept it. They didn't sort of like yeah, put a, put, you know close their eyes. Um, so it can happen to the biggest of companies. So Dermot, what are we seeing in in retail in terms of issues uh, moving away from just the the, the straight recall? Um, because I, I believe that you know we're seeing seeming issues or just you know yeah, presentation. I think, yeah, you, I think just from a craft perspective, uh, they, these beers are the higher end of the market from a price perspective. Yeah, you know, customer can pay up to even, you know, from 15 to $20 a can for some of these uh, beers. Um, so anything less than perfect, uh, it, it just can't be accepted. And if a, a lower priced beer can deliver on aesthetic quality and flavor, and consistency, then you know the expectation has to be there for the higher end, particularly with that high value, higher value price point. Uh, so the issues we're really seeing, uh, and it's not like it's certainly not a high frequency, but the ones of concern and the ones you'd question: why are we having these issues? Uh, would be leaking cans, so from improper seals. Uh, cans just been sticky in general, so uh, just uh, not been properly washed down uh, uh, post uh, seamer. And um, some, one of the other ones I'd go, um, just a general, some of the shelf lives we're giving these products, like uh, I've seen Nipahs with 12-month shelf life. And that to me, uh, yeah, it, it's just, it's not possible. So you, you either just wanting to, you either just kind of picking a, a date in the, and just putting back on your, putting on the can and going, yeah, 12 months is fine. Or have you actually... Yeah, well, uh, just, just before we move on from that point, because that's one of the things that you always hear is that it's the major retailers with long logistics streams that are requiring that 12-month date. Uh, not at all. No, absolutely not. Um, we, the, the business, I think the business model we're now operating with has changed considerably. Uh, we do now direct-to-store deliveries. So, um, so direct-to-store deliveries, brewer brews the beer, packages it, and can deliver directly into our fridges. So that model is quite a, a short uh, supply chain. Uh, the beautiful thing about that, it's, it's localized. So you've got a brewery that's supplying maybe 10 uh, local BWS or dance uh, stores. Uh, but the expected shelf life on those products, you know, it, it's pretty much a, a week old by the time it hits the store. If it's got six month shelf life, or even four, that's fine. That gives us, that's the time then we, we have to sell it. We're comfortable taking that uh, 
those uh, beers with that shelf life into the business. I think uh, the point I'd make back to the brewers and which really helps, like you, you always got to put the, the customer in. It's, it's, it's all about the customer. Uh, it, like a, we're an entire river here. Okay. So we've got the, you know, hops and malts up in the mountains and then the brewers are down in the valley. And we're the point of the, at the mouth of the river into the ocean and the ocean is the customer. So whatever, making sure that river is looked after and cared for ensures that, you know, the water going into the ocean is uh, healthy. So getting together and working with the brewers and helping them understand what, you know, what's happening in our end and we understand what's happening in theirs, uh, we'll get a, a really good uh, quality product to uh, the customer. Um, so if it's a, you know, it's a shelf life issue, it it's doesn't, it's three months, four months, no problem, but just know what it is. But then back to what a uh, point for the customer, share with them the when you packed it and when you'd like them to consume it by. So that to me is, that's a gold standard for, uh, you know, key information for a customer when they look at the, because customers do want the freshest beer. So packaged, I know it's fresh and this is when I should uh, consume it by. But even that, there are practical challenges with that. And I'm famous for uh, word, you know, discussions I've had with someone like Greg Cook um, about, you know, 10 years ago saying that he just doesn't want his beer in Australia because you can't get it to Australia freshly. And then obviously realistic um, concerns take over and, yeah. it, and it goes there. And, you know. Well, yeah, having said that, though, um, you know, as you know, I'm associated with Sierra Nevada these days. They ship their beer refrigerated everywhere. I mean, the, the beer is shipped refrigerated. It's very expensive. But, you know, if you if you keep it cold, you will buy flavor life. Um, now, earlier on, we talked about, you know, refrigeration as being sort of touted as a solution to everything. It's not. But when it comes to flavor stability and freshness, um, the two two main things you can do are, are keep out the oxygen and, 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 uh, and keep the beer cold. So it is, it is perfectly possible to... To, um, to ship beer large distances. But again, you can't expect it to last forever. You know, the, the, you, you, you know I, I, Dermot, Dermot's absolutely right. The, the most important date on there is when it was packaged. And that's the most important thing. And also, as he says, you know, um, how long realistically can it last? I mean, you know, a lot of people hate to, to talk about the big guys, but I can think of one very large brewing company that has the born on date. And it literally states how long before that beer is no longer acceptable. It's like 110 days, you know. Um, and that's that's important information. So I, I know there are brewers that, 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 you know, they basically ignore it. They say it's going to go stale and they just don't, they just ignore it. And they slap on nine months. It's been nine months in the UK for years. And there's a hell of a lot of stale beer there. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but you, you've got to be honest with the customer, in my opinion. Claire, how do should brewers go about understanding what the shelf life of their beer is? I think you've got to take into account um, the various challenges, you know, and cards that you're dealt. So, for instance, we're in West Australia and we're shipping quite a substantial amount of beer now to the eastern states. And we know we've got the Nullarbor to contend with, particularly in the summer. So, you know, for instance, Gage, we've invested massively in chilled storage this end. 
Um, everything we produce now is chill stored until it's shipped and then it goes straight into chill store the other end as well. And that's made a massive difference for us. Um, and we also do a lot of shelf life tasting. So we've got shelf life tasting um, programs for most of our products. So we taste them on four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, and then through to the end of their um, shelf life. And that tells us a little bit about how they're traveling and what we can expect to get out of them. Um, the other thing we do, which, and this is a challenge because we're constantly trying to balance efficiency with how much to run and how big our production run should be with how fresh we want to keep it in the market. And so it's taken us a while to really sort of estimate, um, you know, how much to produce to enable us to keep that supply into the marketplace fresh. So um, a good example was when Little Dove um, first won the champion beer. Um, I think it's fair to say we produced quite a large amount of it and then it just didn't pull through as quickly as we'd like. And it was such a shame because people were getting it off the shelf, having read about this great champion beer and it wasn't, you know, to the standard that we expected it to be. I mean, luckily we've, we've fixed that now, but um, it's definitely something that's difficult to balance, particularly when you're looking at efficiency, you know, of it might be better for you to run you know, six weeks worth of stock rather than two weeks worth from a financial perspective and particularly as small, you know, smaller breweries, that's a very real, a real thing for them to balance and a strain that they're under. So, um, yeah. Just, just um, step us back through uh, your shelf life testing. Is there a protocol you've got for that? For example, do you keep them all uh, refrigerated for that period or do you keep some refrigerated, some at uh, 20 degrees, some at 30 degrees and see how it, what the variation is across those temperatures across time or talk, talk us through your approach? Well, generally, we actually we've got um, we set up a nice little reference room. It's just got a you know a little air conditioner in, and we keep it at twenty two point five. And the reason we do that is we think you know a lot of the supply chain and a lot of stores these days we can't guarantee how the beer is going to be kept. So ambient um, it gives us a pretty good indicator of what our actual consumers are seeing, which we feel is important. Um, we do often do chilled, particularly the single thin, which is our biggest brand. We do do a chilled versus um, ambient storage and we, we, we taste them next to each other. And that's just to tell us that, you know, that chilled storage is giving us the results that we want. But I think ambience is key, really. You want to kind of see a worst case scenario um, and that gives you the ability to step into the consumer's shoes and then work out, you know, realistically how you're going. I know people that, you know, don't store beer um, chilled at home. You know, they might have a carton that sits in their laundry for, for a few weeks and stuff. So you know, I think it is best to work on that worst case scenario, to be honest. Well, the I mean, the simple rule of thumb is that every 10 degrees Celsius increase in temperature, the beer will go stale three times faster, you know, so... If people have got the beer at, at, in a refrigerator or they got it say at 20 degrees Celsius, it makes a huge difference. Uh, so I think the testing is is very important, but ultimately, you know, what the brewer needs to make sure is, you know, when they package that beer, it's got the least possible oxygen in it. You know, it's absolutely critical that they they know all the good practices and uh, and and apply all, you know, so that they genuinely are delivering a product which 
will be able as as much as possible to stand up to to whatever is thrown at it. But you know, there are limits. Well, I was just uh, you actually uh, anticipated my next question, Charlie, about because I remember you have studied, and I was just went looking for the article. Um, that referenced the uh, speed at which beer stales um, at different temperatures. Dermot, do you guys uh, monitor, do, do your own monitoring as beer comes in um, to see how it ages versus how brewers are telling you it's aged? We wouldn't have a, a set program. So I think the, what it shares is that we do have a, a beer panel and that beer panel gets together uh, yearly. And basically we do a mystery shopper essentially. So it's not really getting the beer directly from the, the brewers themselves. It's going into our own stores, pulling the beer off and just getting the same experience then our shoppers would uh, be getting. And then it's, uh, it's basically held uh, as a, a judging. And it, the beers, are, uh, we're not sure, we, we don't know what beers we're looking at. We have, we'll go through particular styles. And then that gives us a, a, a view of uh, where we stand. And we'd look at all, we obviously uh, within Endeavour, we have Pinnacle Drinks and uh, that's uh, the making uh, Endeavour's own beer brands. So we'd look at them too and use that as a, an opportunity just to, uh, benchmark uh, where our own beers are are, are sitting against uh, you know the other beers on shelf, but um, I think the view there would be that uh, that once a year is not a, it's not like a it's a kind of a, a, a once once in a you know a once every twelve months it's not doing it every say month or so but uh, generally it's it, it's good we we learn a lot and we do look at the dates of the products as well and i, I think the the challenging piece is um where, where we've got beers saying it's 12 month shelf life and the reality is once a beer goes past that six months it's really it's just not at its best uh and i think yeah to claire's point there is that you know it's a it's a balance of uh getting the commercials right with the quality but when it really comes back down to it, it really is that your reputation's in your can. You know, a customer goes and looks at the can, you know, connects to that brewery and what the, that experience that they have with that beer, that's their view then of the brewery. And there's, there's your reputation up, uh, upheld or tarnished. So it's it's really important then every part of that uh, value chain is uh, doing its part to ensure that the beer is of the right quality. Um, yeah, then obviously we take, uh, if we do get feedback from customers on uh, off-tasting beer, product and base, we are then pulling those beers in for uh, tasting. So that, that would be the other one. And that's where we get a bit more proactive, where if the, an issue is identified, we're uh, pulling stock off uh, shelf. Kelly, no, just was... sorry, I was just going to say, just before we move off the uh, um, temperatures and the... Um, We've had a question that uh, group, uh, if forsaging beer at 50 degrees Celsius for one to two weeks, does it equivalent to six month old beer at ambient temperature or even reach uh, end of shelf life? Now, let me give you, I mean, when we do experiments um, on, on, on historically, when people done experiments on flavor stability, they force age and the two classic temperatures are 30 degrees Celsius for one month and 60 degrees Celsius for one day. Uh, and it, it really does, you know, if, if, if you if you say that uh, three months at 20 degrees Celsius and if you increase by 10 degrees, it goes three times faster. 
So, you know, one month, sorry, three months at 20 degrees is one month at 30, which is uh, at 40, uh, uh, 12 days or something like that. And, and so you get up to 50 degrees Celsius, you're going to be about four days, <laughs> um, something like that. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's just a guideline. It's just a guideline. But the other thing is, you know, if you, if you force age a beer uh, at higher temperatures, the flavors you get are not the same ones that you get if you store it naturally over a prolonged period of time, you know? So you, you're going to exaggerate some of the sort of cardboard flavors at the higher temperatures, whereas at some of the lower temperatures, other, some of the other flavors are going to come through. And, and what I used to say uh, is, well, it's the, it's the gently flavored beers that are the biggest problem, but that's, that's not necessarily the case. Some of the hoppy beers, they age very rapidly for all sorts of reasons. You know, the, you know, the hop aroma sticks onto the cap or something like that. So different beers will age in different ways. Um, and, and remember, there's a few beers, the higher alcohol beers, that might actually get better. Um, but uh, but that's, that's not the norm, you know. So, um, you know, what I was going to say is uh, just on a, a quality issue, just to show how much importance the big guys have always uh, placed on quality. I remember, I remember at Bass, we had a new beer, and it was the very first production run of this beer, and the label on the bottle was ever so slightly skewed. It wasn't on true, and we just stopped the run and and started again. We wouldn't put the product out just because the label was slightly not on there properly, and that is that is the commitment that that I think all brewers at any level should give uh, to the product. Looking at that, that's, uh, we'll park shelf life for a moment and look at some of the sort of more uh, uh, significant issues um, affecting such as re-fermentation that can. Um, I'm also aware that there have been some tests conducted of um, alcohol um, as measured versus as registered on the can and uh, there have been issues where it hasn't been meeting requirements. What is going on to, that are seeing you know, these sorts of issues? Is it issues in the brew house? Is it um, brewers doing things that they're not qualified or experienced to do? Or is it not caring? Does anyone have a, a feeling for, for what's going on? Um, well, if I say my piece, it, 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 if a brewer knows what they're doing, um, they shouldn't run into these problems, you know. Um, so if if they got re-fermentation taking place, there's a reason for that. Uh, it's either not properly fermented um, in, 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 the, in the fermenter um, or, the, you know, people talk, I hate this term, hop creep. I, I absolutely hate that term. But, but you know, you, you've got some of these hoppy beers and perhaps there are enzymes contributed there which are, which are converting some of the residual dextrins into fermentable carbohydrate. Um, and you've got yeast still there and that's, you know, so, but you've got to be alive to these things. And if hop creep exists as a, as an issue, it exists for any, any brewer that's producing this type of product and not all brewers have the problems. So it's not insurmountable. Um, so fundamentally, though, if you understand the factors which influence fermentability, if you understand controlling the amount of yeast that is or is not left behind there, if you know all about 
all the ins and outs about fermentation and CO2 control and so on. This can be hand, this can be sorted. There's, there's no excuses. Just had an observation in the in the chat room from Tina Panutsis, who could easily be uh, joining us on this uh, on this panel. That we might even uh, look at doing something with her coming up. Um, she makes the observation: the aging process isn't linear; it's more exponential. It also depends upon the beer style, um, okay. and I, I guess that's something. There are no hard and fast rules when it comes to these things, uh, is, is there, Charlie? No, I mean, as I said, you know, different beers will age in different ways. And, um, uh, you know, for some, it's a loss of, of certain characters and others, it's the development of, of new characters. And yeah, some of the, in the blander beers, some of the things will come out more obviously, but some of the stronger beers, you'll lose some of their flavor, and, you know, and it'll change. And it's, 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 it's not entirely predictable, um, but you just got to, to know what you're doing and what is best for your product and what is realistic for your product. Claire, that, sorry. Sorry, go on. What I was gonna say, and I think um, Dermot also touched on this with your, you know, your secret shopper. Um, and to Charlie's point, you know, you've got to get to know your products as best as possible. Um, you know, we go out and buy stuff from the store. So I go and buy single fin, I go and buy most of our beers from time to time so that I can see what's on the shelf and how it's aging and, and get a feel for it in the marketplace. And although it can take a long time to get that data, the more you go out and do that and go and buy the product as a consumer and taste it, the more you get a feel for how that product's gonna age, you know? Um, and the force aging, it, it doesn't do the, the same as the, you know, just letting it age naturally because, you know, we can pick up honey and papery characteristics, but at the same time, you know, there's some residual hop and some quite nice aroma going on in the background. Sometimes we find it some of our beers that have got the darker malts in, they develop, you know, more of a caramelly um, sort of a malt oxidation characteristic. And they're things that if we had heated them up to 60, you know, for a few hours in the lab, we would get a completely different, um, a different outcome. So it is about just setting the time aside and, and learning about your beers, almost in the shoes of the consumer. And then deciding, I think, where to set your where to set your shelf life. Looking at the um, the participants or the attendees, is quite a range. If we look at the smaller end of the market, um, who you know, brewers at the smaller end of the market that say, "Well, I can't afford a dedicated quality control person such as yourself. I can't afford a forty thousand dollar alkalizer. I can't afford all of this equipment." What? should they be doing um, you know, as a bare minimum to guarantee the quality of their product? What sort of processes should they put in place? Well, I think the one thing that any brewery can do that's free is risk assessment. And it sounds very formal, but it's as simple as taking into account all of the possibilities and really sitting and thinking, you know, I'm making a fruit beer perhaps. What are the potential watch outs? What could happen? And then making sure that you've got something within your own means to, um, to control that risk. And it might be as simple as coming down to asking yourself whether that particular product would be better on keg versus should you be packaging it, you know, and have you got the means to package it safely. And then with regards to spending and stuff, I mean, quality is like, like an insurance policy. It's all a ratio, really, with regards to things like loss and reputation with, with what you've got at stake. So, 
for instance, talking about sticky cans, you know, if um, if you're a small manufacturer, but it's going to cost you, you know, less than $1,500 to put a washer at the exit of your can and a blower, I think that's a no-brainer. It, it might be, you know, if you're if you're making 5 million litres upwards a year, then really, you know, and having an oxygen analyzer is probably a no-brainer. And it's all relevant to the amount of beer you're putting out and the reputation and the size of risk to your reputation. Um, but not to forget, there's two ways that qualities work. So that the first thing is protecting your reputation, but the other side is growing it. And that's the thing, if you're not putting out great beers, you're not gonna grow your business either. It's hard to put a figure on it when it comes to quality um, because often it's seen as cost avoidance and you can't come up with this magical figure that it's gonna save your business. But it, it's, it's a good investment, particularly for growth as well. You know, in terms of, of, you know, you don't need terribly fancy equipment. In terms of something like, mm. um, you know, degree of fermentation and avoiding problems and trying to control alcohol levels, then if you know, if you understand the relationship between gravity, present original gravity and degree of fermentation, and you know, you control your fermentation as to the extent that you can, and you understand, uh, you know, the relationship between gravity and uh, ABV, if you know what you're doing, uh, you can keep it fairly simple. And I think that some of the problems that people have is when they, they try to be, you know, they, they want to keep being more and more adventurous and they keep experimenting with products that, you know, that, and they can't necessarily predict exactly what's, what's going to happen, but they think it's kind of sexy and exciting to keep pushing the, the boat out. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. It's once you're able and skilled enough to be able to make the straightforward products um, without problems, uh, then, uh, you know, you're in a position perhaps to experiment and invest uh, uh, more. But, but you'll be able to invest with you uh, more successful with simple products that, uh, that uh, you do well. It, it's funny you say that, Charlie. I had a conversation uh, with somebody this week and looking at whether beer competitions should have, every brewer has to have a qualifying lager and it's almost like you have to be this high to go on this ride before you start doing some of the, put some of the other ones into market. Well, I have been, I have been known to say that uh, it's only when you can make a decent Pilsner that you should then uh, start embarking on other things. But uh, That's just old men talking, Charlie. Well, I'm an old man. <laughs> Claire, something that you've said in the past that, uh, that, that strikes me as well is, the, the, the craft industry and the indie industry looks at things like the independent seal as being a, you know, something that sells their beer very positively, but it links breweries in another way, doesn't it? Oh, yes. So intrinsically, intrinsically links all of our reputations together as well. Um, so, you know, somebody has a bad experience with a product that's got the indie seal on, there's obviously risk to all of our reputations being um, linked together. Um, so, yeah, that's a concern. Um, I head up the IBA Quality Project Group. And so we've been working on a number of like fact sheets. We're going to be hosting a webinar soon. And we're starting to put together a big sensory program to kind of help everybody sort of level um, the playing field really as far as quality and quality expertise and skills just to try and support, you know, that indie beer seal. 
a little bit in terms of quality and consistency. Can you also explain what Bira is, um, which you're uh, a founder of? Oh yes, so that's a um, it's a laboratory proficiency testing scheme, which can be super expensive um, to be part of, and so. Um, a group of us from some Australian craft breweries. So I've got um, John from Brick Lane Brewing. He's the president. Um, we've got Thomas from Stone and Wood. Um, Dan McCulloch, who was at Young Henry's at the time. And then um, Greg, who runs Vint Essentials Laboratory. So they're quite involved in beer testing. We got together and looked at how we can have a sort of an affordable um, proficiency testing scheme in Australia. So we run it as not-for-profit. And basically how it works, it just takes group analysis of the same or a, a similar sample. And then we run a statistical um, report on it and it tells the group how they're going. So whether your testing is um, performing well and it's accurate or whether you're actually outside of the allowable limits. And then because we've got a certain level of expertise, we can help people you know, with regards to fine tuning or working out what the problem is. Um, but we do all sorts. So we do, we do ABV, which is, of course, really important um, for many reasons. And um, we do allow our participants as well to even calculate ABV and take part, because obviously some of the smaller brewers um, don't have alkalizers. So that's good for them. Um, but we do things like IBUs, so bitterness, um, because a lot of people are actually putting that on their packaging these days. We also do colour, impact carbon dioxide. So, um, yeah, and EA. So there's a few things we do. It just allows people once every quarter to know that their testing's on track um, and that they're getting the results they need. Luckily, you know, quite a small cost. We'll um, make sure we include that in the show notes uh, so people can find out about it. But are there other resources? I know that the... Uh, Queensland government has invested in its brew lab in Queensland. It's theoretically a place that small brewers can go and they've invested heavily in things like alkalizers and some of the other things. Um, there is a, a small fee for being involved, but it's certainly much cheaper than spending the thirty dollars or $40,000 on an alkalizer or some of the, that lab equipment. Are there other places that brewers can go to should well, should they be testing their beer or should they be relying on touch and feel um, the, the way that craft brewers uh, want to? Well, um, I, th I think it's good to at least, I, I think quarterly, which is why we set it at quarterly, uh, ideally more if you can, um, to, to, you know, to TED do your, um, you know, uh, alcohol testing, particularly in light of things like ATO requirements as well. Um, but recently I was talking to a manufacturer, I won't say who, of alkalizers, and they had been going around different breweries um, showing, you know, showing off this actually quite affordable alkalizer. And they were finding beers that were quite a bit higher, including some mid-strengths um, than were actually being advertised on the packaging, which is a bit of a worry. Um, That's something that I've been hearing a lot about. Yeah, and that's a massive concern, particularly, like I say, for the mid-strengths, you know, people are making decisions about driving and all sorts, um, you know, consuming those. And the other thing we're going to talk about, and um, we've got a beer webinar coming up, is using standards in your laboratory. So, you know, we have got bigger breweries. You can go and buy VB or, you know, another beer off the shelf, and you can use that as a reference in your laboratory to make sure that your testing's on point. Because you can guarantee, you know, that some of these beers from the bigger breweries will be reliable standards to use. 
I, I will just uh, say to the chat room now or to the participants, if they'd like to post any questions, we're 15 minutes from the end. So now's a good time. If anyone does have any questions, I would specifically like to ask any of the panel. Now's a good time to pop those into the uh, um, question and answer box. Charlie, what are you seeing in the US? I know that you're a, a huge fan of Sierra Nevada, even before you were consulting to them. Um, and I, I think you've said to me in the past that it was quality was one of the things that it wasn't just their beer and being first to market. It was a, a focus on quality that has seen their growth drive. Stepping outside of Sierra Nevada, are you seeing small breweries in the US investing in quality or is it an issue over there as well? Um, many of them are uh, and quality is certainly um, uh, variable and there are some some newer companies coming in that uh, really have a lot to learn but uh, but overall I think the, 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 there's a pretty good attitude uh, going on here um, and I, I haven't run into too many disasters um, recently um, of the type that we're talking about now um, so um, I think, and, and there's a very strong under, undercurrent of support and a lot of interaction taking place that, uh, so it's, it's, a good, it's a good society over here in terms of uh, brewing. One last uh, topic I'd like to uh, sort of touch off on, and it, it, it's, it's almost the um, elephant in the room for craft brewing, and that's pasteurization. It seems that if I speak to brewers about it, uh, there is a very strong feeling that pasteurization represents a line that they won't cross when it comes to compromising their beers, which seems an odd thing when you see brewers willing to compromise their beers by sending them uh, halfway across the country um, or uh, around the world. Um, and and I'm, I'm trying to work out whether there is a legitimate concern around uh, pasteurization or the cynical part of me thinks that maybe it's the thing that brewers don't want to embrace because they are expensive pieces of machinery and they'll embrace anything that they can afford. Um, does anyone have any observations on that? Um, I, uh, I mean, I used to work for Bass, we pasteurized. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't a, some sort of a get out of jail card. It wasn't something that, well, we'll, we'll, we'll we, you know, we don't need to worry about other things. We'll just pasteurize it, it'll be okay. Um, we attended to hygiene throughout the, uh, the plants. Uh, the pasteurization was just um, the final sort of the, the belt and braces thing. Um, and we, we, you know, people sort of got this image of, of boiling cauldrons and, it didn't like that. As long as you've got the oxygen in the control, unless you, and, and as long as you're using very low PUs, pasteurization units, and so on, the impact on beer flavor is is fairly limited, minimal. Um, so I, I personally have not got a problem with pasteurization. As many companies over here um, that that just don't. Um, but uh, if you are going to go for a a a, a, a well, uh, certainly for the lower alcohol products, um, it, it should allow you to sleep in your bed at night. So I, I personally have no difficulty with the concept of pasteurization, but it doesn't excuse you getting everything else right. Claire, I know that you've uh, obviously don't have an objection to pasteurizing. No, no. Um, and it goes back to what I was saying about risk assessment and scope and what's right for your brewery and your products. but. I'm 100% um, behind Charlie here. It's a very small 
part of overall quality. You know, what is far more important is the hygiene, the, you know, the back end, if you get to be, you know, when you're brewing, making sure your tanks are clean and you're not getting infections. It is about oxygen control. You know, I think those things are so much more important to focus on. Um, and then, absolutely, if all of those things are correct and you've got all those ducks in a row, you know, for us, adding a few, um, you know, very low level pasteurization enables us to ship very consistent product all around the country and knowing that people that buy our products are always going to get, you know, an expected level of quality that they know they can trust in. Um, but, you know, obviously I do understand why other breweries don't do it and it's not right for them. But I think it comes down to risk, um, you know, and what's right for your individual circumstance. Quick question uh, from the discussion uh, board is, what are some examples of basic, brackets, relatively inexpensive QC equipment that small craft breweries can invest in to improve their product quality? Uh, breweries that can't afford alkalizers or C-boxes, uh, CBOX, um, for example? Well, the, um, I mean, the, the, first of all, the absolute basics, a microscope. Um, is it should be the first thing that anybody makes sure they've got a fairly small, a modest, cheaper microscope. But you know, the, the ability to measure specific gravity with a hydrometer or something like that, and as long as you're, you're monitoring fermentation, as long as you know when you've reached attenuation, um, and these sorts of things, just simple back, backing, you know, using simple equipment but founded on your understanding of what is going on. I think that's one of the big problems with some people in the craft brewing industry. They just don't understand. They've not been trained. They don't know. They don't know about beer. They don't know about the brewing process. If you understand the brewing process, then using some very simple instrumentation, you should get there or thereabouts. I'll never forget briefly, years ago, I was at a, a brewery in the Midlands of England, and this guy gave me a, a beer and I said, it's quite bitter, isn't it? I, I, he said it is. I said, "What is the what is the bitterness?" He said, "Well, the last time we measured it, it was forty five. I said, "When did you last measure it?" He said, "Nineteen forty six." And it was all because he knew what the the hops, the alpha acid was on the hops, and he knew his brewery, and he knew how long he was going to boil for, and he would get within ten percent of the actual IBU. I'm pretty confident of that. Um, without you know spending money on equipment to actually measure it. So the most important thing is, is, is understand what you're doing and then take advantage of simple technology. Jeremy, uh, was there anything else that you uh, wanted to, to raise um, as part of the, we've talked about uh, aesthetics, non-compliance uh, with, with alcohol um, and secondary fermentations. Was there anything else that you had uh, that you wanted to raise? You know, for example, if, is quality a consideration that Endeavour Drinks Group has when they range product? You know, would, would you range a, 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 a very, very uh, hyped but um, inconsistent brewery, for example? I think the first, uh, it's, it's what customers want. That is probably, we are, we are definitely customer driven. Uh, then coming back to customers tell us what we want, we give them uh, what they ask for. 
we, I think, I love, this is uh, Charlie's uh, quote, but I do love it. And I, I do use this myself. It's selling products that uh, don't come back to customers that do. So if we've got beer that we know they're going to come back and say, actually, yeah, you got this in. Thanks for that. But really, when I've tasted it, it's not that great. Then why? It's a, it's a, it's a one-time it's a one-time experience. So we really want to see customers, uh, you know, customers trust us to provide them safe quality products. Uh, that's what we stand by. It's uh, as simple as it is. We're a, you know, we're a retailer. We sell a product. We want to be proud of that product and we stand by it and we know it's safe. So um, to that question, yes, but it's not to say we wouldn't be looking then if, uh, if, if, um, customers were asking us for a particular product we felt that it just didn't meet the you know if there was concerns about the, the brewery in producing a, a safe product or a uh, a product that was uh, questionable in quality then yeah it, it's more more than like it just wouldn't happen yeah but, and, and you work very closely with your brewers and you want if, if they become yeah. aware of an issue you are, are very open to them you to discuss. Uh, yeah it's uh, the uh, the relationship's great, to be honest. Uh, you know, I've been a brewer myself. Uh, I understand what's happening further down the value chain. And I've been there. I've worked in breweries. I've worked on packaging lines, worked through logistics. And now I've got the privilege of being in uh, retail. So it's it's like the whole value chain. And it, that's, that river analogy really does say it for me. And I, I think the, there was another one there with, uh, I think it was United Airlines, where... Uh, the uh, treatment of one of their customers coming off a, a flight when in uh, Louisville back to, I think, Chicago or something like that. They basically manhandled a guy off the plane because the plane was full and they needed to get some of their uh, staff back for the morning flight. That whole experience getting videoed and the response by the CEO and it was one company had a quite a detrimental impact on the perception of that airline, but uh, it also, the, the NPS score, the, the satisfaction score for the entire airline industry actually went down as a result. So we really do, you know, it, it's, a, it's a shared ecosystem. Uh, we'll look after to ensure we're doing the right thing and selling products that are good quality, great quality, safe. Uh, brewers supply chain need to do the same and then it's really then customer can come in and they trust us they trust uh, us to sell them a great product and then the the breweries we were uh, we're partnering with uh, they trust those breweries too so if there's some uh, there's a you know a player in that ecosystem that's not uh, i suppose pulling their weight is doing you know it's really they're not learning from their mistakes because charlie pointed out and claire pointed out mistakes happen it, it's it's inevitable. It's a process. Uh, something shifts in the process, and you don't pick it up on time. Worst case scenario, we're we're doing a withdrawal recall, but we have had cases where we just do a say distribution center re, uh, withdrawal. So we've stopped it there. So and that's because the monitoring processes are working well at the brewery where they're able to go. Hang on, we've just sent this out. Where is it? Pull it back. Um, but it, it is. It's. You know, we're all in it together. If uh, we all work on it together, we, we add value to the to, to the industry, and you know, the, we ensure the industry's survival. And I like I'm, I, I love uh, to, I, I love what's been happening in the last twenty years since arriving in Australia and seeing the growth of uh, the microbreweries here in Australia. And I, I love the you know the, the communities that put 
explore around it and just walking into a store and seeing that uh, variety of beers and long may it continue. Uh, but uh, what could kill that uh, and just send people back to more, you know, safer uh, industry, industrial mainstream beers is that fear of I'm just about to spend $15 fingers crossed, uh, you know, roll the dice. Is it going to be a good beer or not a good beer? And uh, it's just not, they shouldn't, it shouldn't be a question of uh, maybe it, 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 they, they have to have that uh, trust that they'll pick it up and it's going to be good. Claire, how about you? I, I obviously uh, drink gauge roads uh, is one of your messages, but let's stepping outside of the, the, the business. Um, I'll include details for Bira um, in, in, in the show notes. But you're also on the uh, panel for the IBA. So uh, I'd imagine that breweries that are, that are eligible, you'd be encouraging them to get involved and participate in that. Is there anything else that brewers should be, uh, that you would recommend brewers can do uh, to, to lift the quality of their beer or things that, you know, concrete takeaways from today? Um, not really. I think we've touched on the things that I, I feel most passionately about, you know, talking you know, going back to talking about putting yourself in the shoes of the consumer and looking at your beer, you know, with that with that critical eye, um, and you know, looking at whether if you had to term this point spent twenty dollars on this can of beer or you know thirty odd dollars on this six pack, how you would feel about it and try and be as subjective as you can. Um, and then I think really just you, you sort of be true to your brands. I mean, and make sure that you're always creating value because the amount of money our consumers um, spend on our products they deserve to not be disappointed um, you know and making sure that everything we put out into the marketplace presents is a good value proposition um, versus you know make, from an indie perspective we want them to pick up indie and not mainstream um, mass-produced beer so it has to provide that value because they will go back to mainstream beer if they're disappointed. And Charlie, just as we uh, come close to the wind up, there's a question for you. Um, Charlie, are there any alternatives or emerging technologies that could be used to achieve what pasteurization can? Uh, well, there's all sorts of alternatives. Uh, you know, there's some people do sterile filtration and uh, people have talked about high pressure and so on. Um, Really, I, I, I don't think there's a um, one that's suitable on a, on a small scale. Um, what is the most important thing, I'll say it again, is hygiene, 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 and uh, making sure that, uh, that the product has its best possible chance, a realistic chance in the marketplace, even if it's not pasteurized, and, and that you really uh, have the best possible cleaning systems in place. So, you know, if, if there is an investment to be made, perhaps in, uh, in small-scale microbiolo microbiology. And, and in relation to, um, you know, I, I've said already, uh, I think good training is, is so important. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's no secret I'm uh, past president of the IBD. And, uh, and I think that IBD as a, as a, a route to an education, uh, which is increasingly online these days, um, is, is, is a great investment um, and, you know, will address uh, getting people into a position where they really can brew great beer. 
And another question uh, from Bruce Peachy, who I believe you know. Uh, are there I any advancements? You know, he says uh, he said hello to you earlier. Um, yeah. Are there any advancements in antioxidants? Which is a, a an interesting, a vexing question in the world of uh, sort of uh, craft beer. Um, yeah, there's various suggestions, and of course that sort of got, usually got, uh, butts head on to uh, people's reluctance to use uh, any uh, additions and and and, and process aids and so on. Um, we did some work, and uh, hopefully it's being carried on at, uh, following my retirement, of, uh, of actually uh, a scorbate. Uh, there's a history of people putting a scorbic acid into finished beer, and I can tell you it doesn't have any benefit whatsoever. <laughs> but but we, uh, we, we did some work showing that you can actually use it in, in the brew uh, to, uh, to mop up oxygen in the brew. So I, 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 I think there's uh, some exciting mileage in that. And, you know, vitamin C... Uh, that what's not to like about vitamin C, you know, but you goes with the silica and other good things in craft beer. Absolutely. Beer. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Now I know you don't have anything to uh, plug, but maybe if you would, you'd be plugging your latest book in Praise <laughs> Beer, Charlie. Um, but uh, apart from your other works, uh, which I can highly recommend, do you have uh, any one book um, that addresses beer quality that you would steer um, people to? Uh, well, th- Actually, it's not one, but it's a series of six books with the American Society of Brewing Chemists. But uh, they're, they're, it's, uh, by the time you've bought all six, it's quite expensive. But um, you could buy an alkalizer. <laughs> you could buy <laughs> precisely. But uh, so you know, uh, just put my name into the the web, and there's all sorts of books there. So uh, I, I, I'm too modest to actually. Uh, or, 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 I'm not. I'm not. Brash, brashy and brash enough to actually sort of push push it too overtly. But uh, there's a lot. I'll, uh, I'll link to some in the show notes to keep your modesty yeah, in, intact, right. uh, Charlie. Yeah. But uh, cool. look, that that is uh, the, the hour that we'd allocated. Um, if there aren't any other questions, I'd like to thank uh, my panel, uh, Claire, Charlie, and Dermot. Thank you very much for making yourselves available for uh, you know, and being willing to sort of talk about this issue that can be a little bit uh, sort of hard to talk about. And uh, thank you very much for for your time. And thank you very much to our uh, attendees uh, for attending. Hopefully you've got some value. Please uh, shoot through any thoughts or suggestions because we will be doing uh, more of these. Um, and finally, I'd like to thank our uh, sponsors, Kegstar, who, uh, without whom we would not have made today possible. And you might be interested in reading on Brews News today how uh, Kegstar have announced that they're incorporating the Internet of Things uh, in interesting ways on their keg. So you'll be able to find out all about that uh, by subscribing to, uh, to Brews News. So, uh, everybody, thank you very much and uh, look forward to, hopefully, as the uh, restrictions ease, we can all have a beer and uh, do it in person next time. Thank you, Thank you Pat. Pat. Cheers. Take care, guys.